If you have your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 10. Chapter 10 and beginning verse 21. And while you're turning there, let's go ahead and pray. Pray together. Father, we have just seen the power of prayer. We are so grateful that you hear prayers of your people. We are so grateful, Father, that you stir hearts to affection. And we are just, Lord, eagerly expecting for you to be the hero, for you to be the center of attention, for the spotlight to be on you in this text. And we pray that you're lifted high and that we would see you highly. Uh, So just be with us, Lord. Illuminate the text. Stir our hearts and our minds and prepare us, Lord, for your true word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let me start with this. I, uh, the, a few years ago, I had a buddy who visited his brother in Europe. So some of you may know that depending on how north the country is and depending on what time of the year it is, the day, the daylight is either lengthened or shortened, right? So I remember I was in Norway at one point and I took a picture of my watch. I sent it to Giselle because it was like 10 o'clock at night, but we were walking outside like it was noon. It was just like that. So my buddy, he visited his brother in Europe, and they have these NASA-grade Star Trek-level blinds. I just made that up, by the way. But, but it's they have these super-duper light-proof blinds. I think they're called Roladens or something like that. I know I messed it up. But it's these light-proof blinds that just take out all light, right? It's just completely dark. So they go over there. And they do small talk, they catch up, and then they sleep for the night. And my, bro- my buddy, he says, he wakes up in the middle of the night, screaming. He's like, oh my gosh, what's going on? Ah, right? And his wife's like, what's going on? He's like, I'm blind. He's like, I'm blind, I can't see anything. I close my eyes, it's, black. it's dark. I open my eyes, it's black. I don't know what's going on. And his wife's like, just be quiet, it's the blinds. And he's like, oh, all right, well, well, let me go back to bed. I always think of that. He's told me that maybe 10 years ago, but it's just stuck in my head. And it's so perfectly connected with what we're talking about here. He, he, he panicked, right, with these high quality blinds. But the Egyptians in this story, they find themselves in the supernatural darkness that's outside their control. It's beyond their understanding, and it freezes them. So we're continuing in our study of the book of Exodus, and we're actually in some this cool mini-series with the ten plagues of Egypt. And the events here are unique. They're uh, unrepeatable, if you want to say it like that. But at the same time, if you strip away a lot of the specifics, you see these gigantic overarching themes of God saves, or the patience and grace of God, the uncontested power of God, the fact that God is using limited and broken people, the fact that there's a role for an intercessor, someone who stands in the gap, all of those are embedded in Exodus, in here, and we're, we continually, repeatedly reach out to them and connect to them because it's all interwoven in there. And so far in the story, we have covered eight plagues. Eight plagues, and today in chapter 10, verse 21 to 29, we're actually going to hit up the ninth plague, which is the darkness. So this is actually the second to the last plague, the second one to the last plague. We're going to finish with the the firstborn plague, but we don't know the, the time length between the eighth plague and the ninth plague. It could have been days, it could have been weeks, but in this section, we're only covering nine verses, nine verses, but we're able to, we're going to break them down. 
into four sections and four observations. And number one, they are the cause of darkness. That's where is the source of this darkness? Where did it come from? We'll talk about that. Number two, we're going to talk about a contrast displayed. That's more specifically the contrast between the light in Goshen and the darkness in Egypt. And then we're going to talk about the compromise suggested. That's, that's really Pharaoh suggesting a different way or a little, a little change to what God is asking Moses and the people to do. And then finally, the calloused heart, which is the hard heart that uh, Pharaoh has been, has been uh, hoarding or holding on to. So there's a lot of work to do, so let's just jump right into it. So number one is the cause of darkness, verse 21 to 22. Let's read it together. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be even felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. So God commands Moses to stretch out his hand and immediately lights out total darkness for three days. In fact, we're going to talk about the three days a little later, but this is really the fourth plague when there is no specific verbal warning. Okay. So you get that for the blood and the gnats and the boils. I mean, we can assume that there was warning, but in this, in the text itself, there's no specific warning. It wasn't, it wasn't like the frogs or the hail or the locusts where God says, let my people go. If you refuse, I'm going to plague the land with frogs. If you refuse, I'm going to, I'm going to plague the livestock. If you, don't, if you don't let them go, I'm going to send the locusts. It wasn't any of that prior hand. No warning. Right? So take a look at the text. If you read this, you can, we can really agree this is a different kind of darkness. Different kind of darkness. Verse 21 says it can be felt. Verse 22 says it's thick. Right, that's kind of where we get the, the message title today. Awe that is tangible, meaning it can be perceived by touch. So felt and thick are not typical uh, adjectives for darkness, right? Darkness doesn't usually have physical traits. Uh, and if you think about it, does, darkness is not even a thing, right? It's kind of like cold and silence. What do I mean by that? Well, cold is just the absence of heat. And silence is just the absence of sound. And so darkness really is not a thing. It's an absence of a thing. It's the absence of light. But here's something to think about. If darkness is the absence of light, and Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is the creator of light, then he can remove the light, which then controls the darkness. That is the exact, an exact uh, judgment and mockery of the God of the, of the Egyptians called Ra, who is the god of sun, the god of light, sunlight, all that stuff. In fact, if you think about it, like what Pastor Brian's been saying, all the plagues are actually a mockery, a judgment, a challenge to all of the gods of Egypt. In fact, each of the plague is this visible, tangible connection to God's first commandment which is, you shall not have any other gods before me. In fact, Exodus 20, verse 2 to 3, uh, with the first commandment is actually preceded with, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? That's how the first commandment goes. So when he in- introduces the first commandment, he basically said, remember the, old, remember the gods of Egypt who were not really gods? 
right? Do not have any other gods before me. That's basically what, what the Lord is saying in the first commandment. So it's amazing that all of this is working towards lifting God up, his name up high to say there's no contend, there's no contending with the Lord. He is high. He is in a different category altogether. Take a look at verse 22. I think it's funny because I kind of find goofy things in the text. Right? That's just my predispositions. Anyways, uh, so here's a funny thing. Why do you think Mo- God asks Moses to lift his hand up? Is, is it necessary? I mean, not at all. Like God is not going, man, I just hope that Moses raises his hand. Otherwise, I can't do what I need to do. Right. God's not saying that it was not dependent on whether or not God, whether or not Moses lifted his hand. But we got to kind of pay attention to that because Jesus did something similar. Jesus laid his hands on people sometimes, you know, to heal. He would lay his hand on people. Sometimes he'd make little mud cakes, put it on eyes. So sometimes he'll touch somebody's tongue. Sometimes he'll put his finger in somebody's ear. And then there are other times where he's like miles away and people are healed. So the question is, why touch them if it's unnecessary? Well, what he's going for is the secondary effect. The secondary effect for Jesus was to show compassion, to show connectedness, to show Kindness. You know how powerful it is for Jesus to touch a leper when no one ever touches the lepers and have them feel kindness and love? It was for the secondary reason, the secondary effect. And that's, what, that's what's happening here. God tells Moses, lift your hand up to heaven. And it was for the secondary reason. It was to show that undeniably this was from God. It wasn't simply that there was darkness there and that it was an event and now God's using it for his glory. Instead, this is sovereignly and specifically from the hand of God himself. Isaiah 45 verse 7 says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. So from this verse, this very verse, it it says that the darkness came from God. It was God's idea. He initiated it. In fact, all the other calamities, the plagues are all undeniably from God's hand. So I I know that doesn't always make us feel comfortable, right? That's not a cushy thing. That's not a, that's not a, a snuggie you put on to go, oh man, you know, God, God does that. But let me tell you something, and, and I want you to take note of this. Only a low view of God would need to protect God by hiding his characteristics because we don't understand him. I'll say that again, right? Because it's, it's pretty amazing. Only a low view of God will try to protect God by hiding his characteristics because it's hard for us to understand. So make no mistake, make no mistake, this darkness is from the Lord. And instead of fearing it, instead of being stumbled by it, instead of being repelled by it, we should see it as a tremendous display of God's power over creation. And if he has authority to remove light and therefore bring darkness, not only does he have authority over darkness as it's displayed, but he is able to use the darkness for his glory for his purpose, and he's able to draw men and women to himself that way. That's a tremendous comfort for us, if you think about it, right? Under God's authority, under God's power, even the darkness has its place. Think of the gospel connection in that, right? Because we consider darkness typically as uh, as mourning, as loss, as pain, and even sorrow. But God says, 
Godly sorrow leads to repentance. And then look at Matthew 5, verse 3 to 4. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, it's this very recognition of pain, of mourning, of emptiness. That is our first step towards conversion. When we finally realize our lostness, and our poorness, our spiritual bankruptcy, only then do we really cry out for a Savior. So even God uses this darkness to draw us in. So number one, was the, number one is the cause of darkness. Number two is contrast displayed. Contrast displayed. One verse, verse 23, They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwelling. So verse 23, the most straightforward thing you see here is the contrast. The darkness for the Egyptians and the light for the Hebrews. And the distinction is actually mentioned specifically, and we assume it's for all the plagues, but it's written specifically, mentioned specifically, in the fourth plague with the, fly, with the flies, the fifth plague with the livestock, and the seventh plague with the hail. But we assume all of that. But think about this. This is not in your notes. But next chapter, chapter 11, 11, 7, God actually says, then you will know that God makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. So the Hebrews in Goshen are spared. They're spared the horror and the, and the pain and the, and the trouble because of 2 Timothy 2.19. The Lord knows who are His. The Lord knows who are His. And so this concept of distinction kind of splits the room, right? It hits us a little uniquely, a little differently. And to some of us, you read this and you go, ah, that's nothing. I mean, I live that. That's, I understand that. I get it. I have no issues with that. And then some of us are quietly squirming because it awakens us a sense of social injustice, right? Like we're squirming like, man, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't seem fair. I thought God loved everybody. So I want you to think about this. I want you to think about this. Who should be the first to benefit from a mother's love? The neighbor's kids or her kids? Her kids, right? Her love has to be different and distinct for her children than the neighbor's kids. Oh, how about this? Shouldn't a husband's love be different and distinct from all other women than for his wife? It should be be different for his wife. In fact, if a husband treated every woman differently, you would think something's wrong with that. It's, it's that simple. But I think we have been convinced, we have been shaped, we have been conditioned, especially from a Western perspective, that, that everything should be fairly distributed. And there's some truth to that, right? We understand common grace. The Bible teaches that, that the benefits and blessings fall on both the wicked and the righteous. Matthew 5.45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain to the righteous and unrighteous. So we understand this concept of common grace, but we also need to understand that there's this conditional blessing where it's specifically reserved for his people, for his children, and for those who obey him. So the question is, does that violate grace? Does it violate grace? 
Answer, not at all, because we see all over Scripture it's like that. Abide in me, and I will abide in you. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. Be ashamed of me, and I will be ashamed of you. Obey me, and I will honor you. In fact, the very familiar verse, Romans 8.28, we use it for all sorts of stuff. We love it. But even that kind of hones in on this, and we kind of forget that. So let me read that for you. Romans 8.28 goes, And we know... That all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. So we focus so much when we read this verse, we focus so much on all things work together for good. We forget that it's a conditional truth. All things work together for who? Not for everyone. For those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, is that cruel? Is that unfair i mean it would be if there was no open invitation that everyone can receive the blessings of god it would be unfair if this truth was revealed to a few people in the corner of the world meant never to be shared but the very fact that the gospel is meant to go out into the world makes it squarely just and truly fair jesus tells his disciples go out into the world so the darkness is not simply a cruel joke from a cruel God. It actually is, there's some hidden realities to this. It's pretty amazing. So darkness in the world, it's almost like God unveiled a reality for a second, right? It says, I want you to see what it's actually true. There's darkness in the world represented by Egypt. And then there's light for the people of God represented by the Hebrews here. And the contrast itself is an invitation to those in darkness. Our lives should be the light that invites the world to Jesus. That's, that's really what it is. So I want you to go back to verse 23, because there's a bit more in there. Again, I want you to see that this is a different kind of darkness. It is so bad that people couldn't see each other, and they basically didn't move for three days. Now, there's practical reasons, I think, for not moving around. Like, don't bump, you know, you bump into things. Uh, you have the kids get hurt. So you just, like, sit still, don't do anything, and it just happened to last for three days. But I think there's also this spiritual and emotional peace to this entire thing. The darkness just pervaded everything. It was everywhere. It was thick. It was tangible. So a few years ago, there was actually this British study uh, that wanted to find the effects of uh, total darkness in people, right? So they had six volunteers. They put them in solitary confinement, complete total darkness, right? Sensory deprivation. And they put them there for 48 hours and they wanted, they wanted to measure like what would happen. They wanted to record what was the, what was the effects? And there were certainly physiological effects. Their, their circadian rhythm, their, their sleep you know, patterns were all whack. But there was a lot of psychological effects. So when they were going down the list of, of, uh, of effects, some guy said, man, I was singing in high emotion. And all of a sudden, I started crying. My emotions just derailed. I don't know what's going on. This other guy said, uh, I lost complete track of time. I thought I was there for five days. I thought you guys forgot about me. And there's a, and then multiple, a few people were like recorded that they were having hallucinations. So some guy saw like a fighter jet in there, a zebra and uh, a stack of 500 oysters. No kidding. That's literal, right? From the, from that report that I was reading. So it's pretty amazing. All this, all this effect that the darkness had, but I want you to see something. I want you to see something, right? Because with the other plagues, 
there's this physical aspect. So phys- and physical means limitation. So, so even if there were millions of frogs, there was, you can see them, you can run from them, you can whoosh them away, you can, you can go, oh my gosh, right? You can see the threat. And even if there was a storm or locusts or, or flies, you can see them in, in very few places, but there are places where they are not. And even with the flies or the, the gnats, they were outside of their bodies, right? But the darkness was just totally consuming. They opened their eyes, it's dark. They closed their eyes, it was dark. It was just total and complete, and it affected them. And I want you to think of this. This is the only plague where no one physically suffered, right? No one got hurt. No animals or plants died There was no smell, no horrific uh, visuals, no physical torment, no discomfort, but no other plague arrested the entire population of Egypt so that they didn't move for three days. That's supernatural darkness. Do you know how terrifying and how overwhelming darkness would have to be for you to just sit there for three days? That's, that's, I couldn't even fathom that. And think about this, right? It's actually six nights. Because otherwise, it would be day, night, day, night, day, night. Here, it's night, 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 night. That's amazing. It's six nights bashed into one. So crazy. But think of the three days. Three days is, is, a, is a call to... It sounds familiar, actually, right? It's the, the same amount of days that Jesus was in the tomb. It was the same amount of days where Jonah was in the whale, which is bait or for fish, which is actually a reference to Jesus in the tomb. So again... Even the darkness points us to Jesus. This is God's work, right? This is our, our God going, look at the breadcrumbs I'm showing you to lead you to me. Even the darkness is not a threat to me. I use it for my glory. Amazing. So number one, what's the cause of darkness? Number two is contrast displayed. And then number three is compromise suggested. Verse 24 and 26. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go, Serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you, like it's a bonus or something, right? Uh, But Moses said, you must also give us sacrifice and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord. And even we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. So here again, there's a back and forth between Pharaoh and Moses. Pharaoh calls Moses and say, hey, listen, I got some terms for you again. You guys can go and hear the details. And Moses disagrees. Not only does Moses disagree, he actually imposes that that Pharaoh provide them herds for sacrifice. So verse 26 actually is, is pretty uh, practical. So Moses says, we do not know what we must serve until until Lord, until we arrive there. Basically what he's saying, in other words, is God didn't tell us what to sacrifice or how much to sacrifice, so we're just going to take everything. There's no way for you to tell us, I'm not going to bring this stuff, because we don't know what God's asking us to do until we get there, so we're going to bring everything. So that's the practical aspect. The spiritual aspect is that Moses recognized this is compromise. It's subtle. It's, it's like a deal. It's easier, but make no mistake, in the end, it's disobedience. 
And that's not, that's not the first time that Pharaoh did something like that, right? On, on the fourth plague with the flies, in, he said that, go sacrifice to your God within this land. And then uh, three verses later, he changes it. He says, well, you can go, but just not too far. And then last week, uh, with, the, with the locusts, Pharaoh said, well, well, only the men can go, right? Only the men. So that's okay. And that sounds like a deal. If you were Moses, why wouldn't you take it? But here's, here's the reason. Because to be 99% obedient is still disobedience. To be 99% obedient is still disobedience. It's not simply a matter of convenience. It's sin. And we need to be able to see that so we can address it properly. So, number one is the cause of darkness. Number two is contrast. Three, compromise, suggested. And four is a calloused heart. Calloused heart. Verse 20, so here it goes. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take heed to yourself, and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, you have spoken well, I will never see your face again. Interestingly, they see each other again later, but in in a different situation. So verse 28 and 29 is it's fairly easy to understand, right? Pharaoh is in a rage. He loses it. He proclaims a death warrant for for Moses. If I ever see you again, you're dead, right? Uh, but outside of a prestigious king losing it, which is kind of unusual, this is kind of fairly easy to understand. So we'll move that to the side and we'll talk about it later. But the, the challenge is really, and it's always been verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. I want to I be honest with you, right? I'll be honest with you. If, you. if you press me, I wholeheartedly believe Proverbs 21.1. Which is, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Dear friends, I want to tell you something. Our hearts are not off limits to God. No matter how much we think it is. Our hearts are not off limits to God. And I want you to tell you something. I want you to not look at that as an invasion of your will. I want you to celebrate that. I want you to see that as a good thing. Because the person you're praying for... The one that is far from God, his heart, her heart is not off limits to God. The, the one you had an argument with, the one that you're having difficulty with, with, maybe at work or at home, their hearts are not off limits to God, right? That's a, that's a thing to celebrate. It's not a thing to, to, to be offended by. We, I'm, I'm grateful that my heart is not off limits to God. And as the proverb states, he can turn it wherever he wishes. See, but, but I don't think that's, explains everything that's happening with Pharaoh. God did not simply lock up his heart, so he didn't have a choice. So Romans 9.19, Paul is actually, you know, kind of gives us a glimpse of what's happening. He anticipates a question, and he cuts it off at the pass. So he says this. He says, you will say to me then, why does he, talking about God, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will. I don't know if you saw that really quickly, but there's two gigantic theological truths that he just said intertwined in one breath, right? He said, God still finds fault. In other words, he holds us responsible. And he says, who can resist his will? Because God is sovereign. There's a big 20 cent word for this. It's called concurrence. 
It is the reality that God and human beings both act the same time. So the Lord's plan is truly fulfilled exactly how he wants it. But our will is truly our own. Let me say that again, right? Because it's kind of a lot. Uh, concurrence says, that idea is that the reality of that God and human beings both act the same time so that the Lord's plan is fulfilled exactly how he wants it, while our choices are truly ours and, and really our own. So that's not a solution, but that's an observation of what's going on here with the hardening of this heart. In the end, does God get exactly what he wants? Yes. Are Pharaoh's decisions his? Yes. Did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Yes. Is Pharaoh accountable for his decision? You betcha. That's this tremendous mystery that all we can do is look from outside of the window and say, God, you're marvelous. I don't even understand this, but you deserve glory and you're lifted up in the center of it all. You're the hero of this thing. But I want you to step back there because there's a couple of other gigantic realities that are kind of tucked away in the corner here, right? And the first one is that there is no way that God can be accused of injustice here, right? By the time the 10th plague happens, whoever is reading this, whether Christian or not Christian, whether you read it or believe it or whatever, when you read this, you will, you will say, God has given Pharaoh enough opportunities to comply. Not even repent. Just comply. Right? Pastor Brian talks about the repentance, and yes, absolutely. But look, not even repent. Comply. That's amazing, right? So Rabbi Zacharias says, it is not the lack of evidence, but the suppression of it. Romans 1.20, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. You see, Pharaoh's resistance to God is the same as mankind's rejectance to the existence of God. In the end, it's a moral decision, not a lack of evidence. The second thing is that this resistance to God can be a frustration for those on the other side, for those who are serving the Lord, for those who are praying for their loved ones, for those who are pastors and evangelists, for those who are co-laborers with Christ. This is frustrating and this is demoralizing. How long do I got to pray for this person that I love for their hearts to change? How long will they bend? How long will it take for them to bend their knee? It's been years. It's been years for them. They've been wayward so long, right? It could be a frustration for us, but I want to pull a seemingly unrelated verse to all of this to kind of help clarify. So Mark chapter 12, verse 17, and it's actually repeated in Matthew 22 and Luke 20. You guys know the story. Uh, They're trying to trap Jesus, asking him about taxes, and Jesus says, well, give me a coin, and they give him a coin. And this is what Jesus says, who's... Whose, whose face is on this? And there's a, well, Caesar. And, and he said, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. The fruit, the heart that has changed, that's God's. The, the obedience that comes from, from submitting yourself to Christ, that's God's. The results are God's. People's hearts, that's God. God owns those things. Our role, our responsibility is obedience. It's discipline. It's faithfulness. It's kindness, it's love. Those are the things that we own. So let's work in those realms. Give to God what belongs to God. 
as we kind of wrap this up, and I was talking to Pastor Brian that some of the themes were pretty awesome because they all intersect with each other, even with his message. But as we close, and as we near the end of these plagues, I want, I want, I want us to see that God, you know, he, he sends these plagues for several reasons. To demonstrate his power, for, as a testimony for future generations, as a judgment and a mockery to the gods of, of Egypt, or to show that he answers prayers, to show that he can rescue his own people. But I want to I propose one more. One more. On the first encounter that Moses had with Pharaoh, Moses tells, Moses tells Pharaoh through what God is saying, let my people go. And, and Pharaoh responds, Exodus 5, 2. He doesn't know any better. He's full of arrogance. And his response is obviously dipped in arrogance. And Pharaoh says, well, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So in response to Moses' presentation, Pharaoh mockingly asks, who is the Lord? I don't know the Lord. And so think about this. Over the course of weeks and months and over the course of 10 devastating plagues, Pharaoh received an undeniable, tangible, and visible lesson of who God truly is and his power and his majesty. And it is a demonstration of how far God will go to rescue his people. Amazing. Amazing. So let's kind of wrap it up with some takeaways. The first one, number one, is do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Now, that's not what you think it's going to say, right? I'm not talking about, and I'm not simply talking about salvation or repentance because those are absolutely true things. We got to do those. I'm talking about for us on this other side, our willingness, our unwillingness sometimes to allow our hearts to grow soft, to fit into the framework of Scripture. That's what I'm talking about, right? That's what, it's our resistance, those of us who know the Lord, our resistance to bend what we assume and what we think or what we grew up knowing to what the Bible truly says. Earlier we talked about how about protecting God by hiding his characteristics and by hiding who he is because it's hard to understand. In reality, when we do that, the only person we're protecting is really ourselves because it's traumatic. It's traumatic when we encounter God honestly. Our pride is hurt. Our wills are dashed. Our knowledge is trampled on. But that is the cost. That is what it takes to get to know God honestly. That's number one. Number two is recognize the nature of compromise. Recognize the nature of compromise. Compromise is good when it comes to marriages or business meetings or group efforts, right? Group projects. It's, It's good to be able to compromise, but it is not good when we're talking about obedience and devotion. It's not good. Right? The nature of compromise is super subtle. It's just a little bit more of something wrong and a little bit less of something that's right. And it feels like a deal. It seems easier, but in the end, it's disobedience. 
And so I think what we're after sometimes is this practical Christianity that we're, we're chasing after what works. But that's not what we're supposed to chase after. We're not supposed to chase after what works, what practically works. We're supposed to chase after what's true and what's accurate. And so Pharaoh suggested this subtle compromise to Moses. Moses recognizes it immediately and he pushes back. So our prayer should be, must be, or must not be, God, not God, give me the strength to push back, but also, God, give me the eyes to first recognize compromise. And third and final is don't fear the darkness. Don't fear the darkness. That's not a cliche about magic or uh, wishful thinking, right? Like in movies, don't fear the darkness. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a reminder that our God dwells in unapproachable light. In Psalm 139, verses 11 to 12, the psalmist is talking to God. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day for darkness is as light to you. Our prayer must not only be, Take me out of the dark, Lord. It should be, Lord, teach me how to trust you in the dark. During the situation right now, we find ourselves, I don't know specifically, for your life. Our prayer must not only be, Father, remove this stuff from our lives. Remove this challenge, this obstacle, this darkness from our lives. It must also be, Father, you can use the darkness and so Teach me to trust you during the dark times. I'll end with this. John 12, 46. It's not in your notes. It says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. We have to remember that he is light, but we are his.